Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Looking forward to another great discussion with Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, let's kick it off with you. Thanks, John. So I thought I'd try something a little bit different this week. As, as you guys know, and I think some of our listeners know, I teach an MBA class at Kellogg where it's a basically an applied internship in investing and asset management. So we take a bunch of first year and second year MBA students and students getting a, a law degree and an MBA at the same time. So it's a good good cross-section of the school and we place them into hedge funds, mutual funds, pensions, endowments, family offices, all the usual suspects. So they they do basically what would equate to a kind of a part-time summer internship style project um, of their choosing and the firm's choosing. And then the other half of the course is they got to come listen to me ramble on once a week. It's not really, but we try to have a seminar and a discussion. So I give a lot of reading um, and then there's, you know, kind of a discussion and we do a lot of mental uh, psychological games and mental accounting style tricks to kind of expose their inherent biases and and mental liabilities and the things that they didn't know. Because what motivated me to do this, you know, four or five years ago when they asked was just that there was no class like this um, when I went through the program. I mean, you kind of make this jump from academia to the real world. And as we all know, the gap between academia and the real world in investing is gigantic. It's probably as wide as any subject you could imagine. And so, you know, the idea here is that I, I come in as a non-tenured, non-PhD faculty member to say, okay, this is how a fund might actually operate. This is how the markets actually operate, despite what you may have learned in your other classes or from a textbook. And I, I always just thought it was a huge travesty that we're graduating, you know, legions of MBAs every year who have, you know, great backgrounds. They're, they're very bright, but they really have no grounding whatsoever in the basic principles of asset management. And so my my pitch, so to speak, to students has been, look, I don't care if you want to run a fund someday, although that's great. Or if you want to get a, a job as an analyst right out of school, that's great. And that that turns out to be actually only about half of the students that take the class. The other half is I say, look, if you're ever going to have a senior executive role, you need to understand investment because M&A decisions investing decisions, stock repurchase decisions are investing decisions, paying a dividend. You know, all of these decisions are central to your responsibility as a senior executive or as a board member. And you know, because if you asked your average MBA class to raise their hand, do you ever want to be, you know, a senior executive or a board member or whatever? I mean, it's the vast majority of the class, right? So how on earth can we graduate people and have given them no preparation whatsoever for one of the most central roles that they're ever going to face? Uh, and even just in a more basic level, I mean, it's got to be somewhat embarrassing and lead to a lot of mistakes in real life when when you come out with an MBA degree and you really don't have the first clue as to how you should be managing your personal portfolio. And so I don't see my role at all is to get up there and preach the high sermon on value investing with a capital V. And in fact, I do just the opposite. And I certainly don't get up there and tell other people 
how to invest their own money. But I do try to expose how little they know and try to start pointing them in the right direction on things that they should be reading. So we can talk a little bit about you know the reading and, and the materials that I assign and, and what goes into that. But what I'm going to... So today's actually our last class. And so one of the things that I distribute at the end is what I try to keep to just two pages, just the front and back of one piece of paper. And these are the big ideas in any investment process. So whether or not you're managing a not-for-profits endowment, whether you're you know, a CFO or a CEO of a company making capital allocation decisions, whether you're managing your own personal account or retirement portfolio, these are the kind of the big things that you would need to know or need to implement in your, in your process. And so backing up a step, I mean, we actually start by trying to frame the discussion the very first week of the class. So I start with what I call an investment belief survey where I, I ask the students to respond to just you know 10 or 15 questions about some basic precepts in, in investing, like the value of any financial asset, a stock, a bond, a farm, an apartment building, is the discounted present value of future cash flows. And thank God, I think I've gotten almost everybody to mark true on that one. But then we get into some other stuff. You know, Is it possible? It is possible to get an informational edge in most or all of my investments. And you know, a, a decent number would say true to that, which I would take some issue with. I don't think it's true in most or all. Growth is a component of value, and a surprising number of people check false at the beginning of that. Um, I actually put Ben Graham's old line: "Investing is most intelligent when it is most businesslike," and it like nobody has any idea what I'm talking about, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, you have a strong, well-informed opinion about the future cash flows inherent in a certain investment, you make a commitment to that investment. And a month after making your investment, the quoted market price has declined by 30%. There's been no news or other developments that are relevant. And the riskiness of this investment has increased, decreased, stayed the same. I don't know. And the answers to that are all over the board, which is really, really interesting to me. Um, You know, on the psychological side, I mean, the one thing that stands out about this group of students, and again, they're all pretty much in their mid to late 20s, is how open and willing they are to share ideas publicly. So, you know, Twitter, of course, and and just about everything else you could imagine. And so I, I put on there, making your beliefs or your investments known publicly is likely to make your conclusions more easily changed or less easily changed. And despite reams of, psych- of evidence and psychological studies showing that it makes your opinions less easily changed. Most of the students actually believe it makes you more able to change your mind, which I think is really, really interesting. A, a good number would agree that it is possible to pay too much for a great company, but there were, there were some that would say false. Uh, surprisingly, you know, everyone acknowledges the rise of passive, passive and indexed investment, but still think that fundamental security analysis is both relevant and potentially even more relevant as you know that power gets concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. Um, so anyway, I, those are kind of the the beginning of course things that we lay out to kind of frame the discussion. And then as we get to the end of it, I mean the the, the things that I'm really trying to you know pound in, so to speak, um, because again, I, I you know in an, in an MBA course or in life in general, I mean right. And so I've kind of found that if I don't have a relatively simple, digestible thing that can't be almost a desk reference, right? Something that they can put all put their hands on easily and, and keep coming back to rather than just forgetting it, right? Because I literally probably send 
20 of Michael Mobison's papers, right? And every one of them is awesome. And every one of them is 30 to 60 pages long with footnotes. So I don't know how much they get read and I don't know if they'll get revisited as much as they deserve to be revisited. But if I can have kind of one page of basic principles and tenets, I think it might serve the purpose even better. So the things I'm including, and I want to hear generally what, what you guys would include on a, on a page like this, is I start with just think for yourself. You've got to be able to figure it out and you can't stop asking why until you have the real answer that satisfies you. It's not good enough if somebody else has the answer. It's not good enough if you can kind of get halfway there. You really have to think for yourself and know what you know and know what you don't know. So the, the second basic principle is that overconfidence is deadly in this game and that it's way easier to achieve success by avoiding stupidity rather than being the smartest person in the room. Try to learn something every day, read as much as possible, track and measure what you're doing, You know, set daily and weekly quotas and goals, uh, never assume everything. Um, I always like Robert Caro, Bob Caro, the author, you know, turn every page, turn every damn page, you know, that kind of trust, but verify kind of model to really keep digging. Um, inverting is obviously, you know, a well-known, uh, principle. It's been popularly espoused by Charlie Munger for good reason that, you know, sometimes the best way to solve a problem, whether it's an investing or business writ large or life is by looking at it backwards or upside down. You know, we, we actually also do uh, towards the beginning of the course, an exercise in confidence intervals where I, I play the game where you get 10 questions and the, the entire goal is to make sure that at least nine of your answers fall within the correct range. So it doesn't matter how wide the range is, but you want to be in that range. So I would say, you know, how, how far is it in miles from the earth to the moon? And it doesn't matter if your range is 10 miles to 1 trillion miles. You just want to make sure you're in that range nine out of time, nine out of ten times for the ten questions that we ask, and yet people can't resist the psychological urge to show off at least a little bit of knowledge and tighten that range way, way too much. And so I'll ask a question like, you know, how long is the pregnancy of an elephant? And people will assume that oh, there's no way it's more than like you know twelve or maybe maybe 13 or 14 months and that's not correct it's like 20 i can't remember off the top of my head 22 months or something it's kind of ridiculously long and so everybody gets that wrong or you know how much does 5 gallons of water weigh and they start thinking about it, and they put this ridiculously precise number on there and the same is true in investing right you know i say we we also do a lot of blind valuation exercises where i'll present you know Tesla with no name at the top next to some other car manufacturer with no name at the top. And it's literally just the last, you know, five or six years of historical financials and maybe a couple of years of projections. And I'll say that these are both, you know, maybe I'll give kind of a general description of the industry, but I won't, I won't name the name. And we've done this on the podcast, right? We did this last year a few times. And it's amazing how precise the estimates are. And the answer I, I try to tell them is like, you don't need a precise answer. You need a range that's correct. Right. And, and, that seems to have maybe started to sink in. I'm not sure. Um, what else is on the list here that's important? Um, I think the, the ability to hold two competing ideas at the same time and not have your brain melt down is huge. Many, if if not all, aspects of investing have ideas that seem to contradict each other. Uh, you have to be able to, to learn to reconcile those contradictions and move forward. Uh, many of the great failures, or even most of the great failures in investing seem to come from you know, losing focus on what it is that you're you're trying to do, right? So you're not trying to impress your friends. 
You're not trying to raise the most amount of money in a short period of time. You're not trying to minimize your tax bill every year. You're trying to make the best risk-adjusted decisions you can possibly make, right? For whatever your goals are in that investment program. And people just seem to take their eye off of that ball an awful lot. Um, we talk a lot about the difference between pricing and valuation. So multiples can be useful in a pricing exercise and they can be useful as a shortcut or a proxy to valuation, but they are not in fact valuation and it's dangerous to confuse the two. It's just as dangerous to confuse speculation and investment, right? There's nothing wrong with using multiples. There's nothing wrong with speculating, but it is dangerous to confuse the two with what they're often conflated with, which is investment and valuation. Valuation must consider the business's competitive environment. It must consider the people involved. You know, the best process is always going to combine man and machine, right? So I, you know, there, there's obviously a strong case to be made for quantitative investment only, but this gets back to this notion that you know business is most intelligent or investing is most intelligent when it's most business-like. And you know, again, I think totally remo- removing the human element from business is never something that's made sense to me. And business is made up of people, and I just don't know how to do that. Uh, one thing that seems to blow their mind that just has not been covered um, elsewhere in finance is is the concept of cost of capital, right? I mean, they've been drilled over and over and over again about calculating the weighted average cost of capital and using CAPM and beta and all this stuff. And I, I sort of throw all that out the window and say the cost of capital is determined by your opportunity cost, right? This is not a new notion for most of the people listening to this probably, but it, unfortunately it is kind of a new notion for them. And so I, I say, look, you know, if, if you're doing a cost of capital analysis and you think you've got it to one decimal or two decimal places or something, you're, you've wasted everybody's time. I mean, you, th- this needs to be a simpler discussion than that. It needs to be based on common sense and what else you can do with the money. We talk a lot about psychology. We talk a lot about market history. We talk a lot about incentives and how important that is. Reflexivity gets almost an entire week of its own. One of the more interesting discussions is we've had is what do you do when you make a mistake? Because in a lot of cases, you know, like I said, these are rel- these folks are relatively new in their career. They have not had, in general, a ton of failure professionally, right? I mean, for the most part, they all kind of got where they wanted to be in school and in their first job and in life. And so, you know, most of them have not had a failure as an entrepreneur. Most of them have not had, you know, been fired at a job or had a company go bankrupt or something like that. So that that's actually a fascinating conversation. And I think if if you can teach or at least tell people to expect the need for resilience, that that's a that's a good thing. So and at the very end, you know, I actually just turn it upside down myself and say, you know, I've 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 named kind of seven sins of the investment process. So you're gonna look at it backwards. Like what, what were the seven things you do to make it just horrible? So I would say separating securities, stocks and bonds, any, any kind of security from the underlying business. I think that's always a huge mistake. Ignoring probabilities or assuming there's only one possible state of the world, right? I mean, that always drives me nuts when people assume that, you know, well, this is the way it happened. It could never have been any other way. This is, it was foregone conclusion. Uh, you know, related on that topic would be ignoring base rates, right? Or using point estimates instead of ranges, right? So when, when you just assume that you've got this tunnel vision to the truth, that's almost always a huge mistake. Accepting facts, in air quotes, without thought or curiosity, um, failing to ask why. Reversing the proper order of investment research by starting from the outside and working in. This is something we also hammer on, which is that, and I actually learned this from, from Jim Chanos and doing his work on the short side, which is that if you do nothing else, at least get the order of the research right, which is to start 
as close to the truth as you're ever going to get in what companies are required to disclose legally in a standardized format. Then you move one step out into people that have some connection to the company personally, where they might be biased in one direction or the other. And only at the very end do you go to the most biased people, which are you know company executives, other investors, that sort of thing. Because by that point, you need to have at least a little bit of a grounding in the facts to ward off those, those inherent psychological biases that are going to come your way. Losing sight of two or three big ideas that matter to any investment, pretty good way to, to screw up the process, confusing valuation with pricing and ignoring psychological factors. So anyway, I'll stop rambling there. That's just kind of the highlights of it. I think we can probably, uh, I'll take some of the specifics off of it and try to PDF it. And maybe we can put it in the in the show notes and share it and people can chime in. But uh, John, Elliot, what do you guys think I missed or what are your thoughts? That's awesome. Like how incredibly valuable that you do this with uh, the students. I wish I had something uh, as robust and thoughtful as that when I was getting started. Um, I've been thinking about this as well because each year we take a summer intern and our intern will be starting shortly. And so, you know, interestingly enough, or I think it makes sense, but we kind of converged on the same kind of documents that we send uh, to get people introduced to this all. Basically, like a link to a bunch of PDFs from Michael Mobson. And I have a reading list that covers um, a fairly wide range where it's like about uh, how to think, analysis itself, uh, some market history, uh, and trading side of things. So, you know, 101 to 1 in the stock market, for example, More Than You Know by Mobson, Alchemy of Finance by Soros. Um, and I really think everyone should read The First Tycoon, which is a great biography of Vanderbilt, but really a history of the development of capital markets in the US. Um, so, you know, that, that's background of how I'd introduced a couple topics that I'd, or a couple of themes that I'd add to your like one to two pager. Um, you know, I think it's really important to think probabilistically. Um, get out of this, you know, I like it or, you know, binary, like think in terms of likelihoods and try to get better at handicapping those. Um, I'd also, you know, try to impress some people. There's no one best way to invest in markets. A lot of it comes down to knowing yourself uh, and again, avoid those, those binaries. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that markets are not inherently zero sum. I think it's so hammered in on people that your gain in markets has to come at someone else's expense. And when you think of the most, like, call it a basic way that people make investments, strip out markets themselves, like I invest in a company to give them the capital they need to grow, that should be, you know, inherently non-zero sum, where both uh, parties, the seller and the buyer win together. And you could find other ways of that, but stop thinking of markets as zero sum. And I think you'll have a better, uh, more uh, diverse approach to how to invest. Um, get really good at listening. I think uh, that's one of the things when I, when I was younger, I, I'd fault myself for having been a little more keen to as I'm speaking to someone who's incredibly knowledgeable, trying to think about my next question instead of listening first, you can pause before you ask the next question. It's not not bad. Leave your mind open. Don't cloud it with uh, you know moving one step forward. Re you know, relatedly, I'd say don't be scared to ask obvious questions because some of the best answers I've ever gotten were asking things that are like extremely obvious, and I think that's pretty powerful uh, um, and underrated. 
Um, don't fear mistakes. You talked about this, Phil. You know, everyone makes mistakes. But what I'd add to that is be self-reflexive and understand your own emotions. Like understand how they create impulses to action, slow yourself down, uh, but be totally honest with yourself if you're wrong. To me, there are two kinds of mistakes in this business. There's one where you lose money because you know any uh, investment has probabilities. You could end up in the wrong end of the distribution, and that might not have been a mistake so much as you know it's it's an outcome of of what we do. It's it's a product of investing. Um, but you know the other kind of mistake is if you make an analytical mistake. You have to know if you've done that. So, like, be totally honest with yourself about where it falls and be able to understand why. Um, then I think it's important to tell people uh, and myself this pretty often being a good analyst is not the same as being a good investor. You could do great work, build the numbers up appropriately, but be terrible at handicapping risk reward and actually putting chips at risk and managing that risk. Managing the risk, meaning, you know, exactly what, what you were talking about, Phil, where you know, what's the answer to the question of if this investment goes down 30% before anything's changed, right? Um, the market is designed to make you want to act. It, it, it's designed to induce you to do what you don't want to do. It's not supposed to be easy. So being a good analyst is not the same as being a good investor. And, you know, a lot of the other points that we're talking about kind of lead to how you could kind of make that transition. But um, the skills are kind of a commodity. They're easy. Uh, of being an analyst, not so much of being a good investor. Um, you talked about this as well, but study market history and how capital markets evolved over time. I think it's important to you know, understand these transactions that are at essence of capital markets and know and appreciate the history of how you know, we live in a very abstract world today. There are a lot of abstractions that emerged over like initial simple uses. And so understand what are abstractions and what's core essence and never lose track of core essence. Um, and then lastly, you know, the, these are what, what's come to mind as you were speaking, but I think, you know, acknowledge the fact that tails happen far more frequently than every model would infer. Six Sigma events happen all the time. And, um, you know, there's something to be said about how we should just understand uh, and, and, and appreciate, you know, exactly what Taleb was teaching us uh, in Fooled by Randomness and black swan, but tails really do happen. And so you have to be um, prepared for that to happen and understand and know what you'll do when it does. Um, so those are a few I'd add, and you know, obviously kind of some are points of emphasis more so than adding to your list, but um, oh, that's you know, great topic. I'm gonna steal several of these, so I hope you don't mind the lack of compensation <laughs> or effective It's all good, that's what which, we're here for, right? Of, of which there are none. Yeah, I mean, I think a really interesting one that I had never thought of was that markets don't have to be a zero-sum game because I think, you know, I will say this, I, I was probably a little wrong in what I thought the students' pre-existing biases would would be, right? And look, there's there's some sample bias here for sure, right? Because they're choosing to take this class, but there is not a anti-market or anti-capitalist bent find anywhere in these students, despite what I've otherwise read and heard about, you know, this generation of even MBA students. So, but yeah, I think it's an interesting point because I do think business schools in any generation, particularly when it comes to investing in capital markets, kind of teach the dog eat dog world. And uh, I, I agree with you that if, if you look at it more as, as markets are there to serve and inform and, and can 
also create lots of value along the way. And it's not somebody has to win and lose at, at opposing ends in a zero sum. I think that's a, a huge thing. And, you know, getting good at listening is such a foundational skill and something to just explicitly focus on and practice. And that that's totally missing from this list. That's something I should, should actually put in there. And, you know, I have not, again, most of these students, at least in the next couple of years, are probably not going to jump directly to a portfolio management, although a couple of years is probably overstated. That's that's actually possible. Maybe not on day one, but yeah, I, I agree. We've seen there's such a huge difference between being a good analyst and being a good investor, or even you know even just analyst versus portfolio manager kind of dichotomy. That's that's definitely something to uh, to check on because that's that's a huge one. John, what about you? Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, jump in on this notion uh, that markets don't have to be zero sum uh, because not only do they not have to be zero-sum, but they're definitely not zero-sum. Otherwise, we wouldn't need markets, right? I mean, think about it. If they were truly zero-sum, they would uh, add no value to the economy and we wouldn't need markets. And the whole function of markets is to allow for intelligent capital allocation to businesses that can invest that capital at attractive rates. So, um, you know, you could say that day trading is zero-sum, but primary issuance um, and kind of the capital formation a part of markets is definitely not zero sum. Now, capital can also get destroyed uh, that way if you um, are, you know, if you have businesses raising capital that uh, don't deserve it, but investors uh, falsely uh, fall for those stories or, or, or what have you. Uh, but they're definitely not zero sum. I'd say um, for me, you know, as an investor, it's really valuable to have a capital allocator's mindset rather than um, what I call a small fish mindset. And I write about this in my book as well. I think for most uh, investors, you know, the, the amount of money they're investing is so small that they're never going to own a, a big chunk of any public company. So uh, you can fall into this small fish mindset that you're just thinking about your own purse and how much you're putting in, in each uh, company, and you're not thinking about how much of the company you actually own. And uh, the latter is really important. So uh, related to that, um, I would say invest only in a company if you actually would feel confident buying the whole company and feeling like you'd get a good return from buying the whole company. A, it means you need to really know the business well enough to be able to make to take that step. And secondly, um, you need to think of it as making money from the business and not from an eventual sale of the stock. Um, another just basic principle, a psychological principle, uh, the, the saying, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. I think that's just a, a great reflection of kind of how we sometimes need to go against our uh, innate instincts or the the, the fight or flight um, you know uh, response. Um, usually, you know, if you kind of just think of that, you don't have to do it necessarily, but at least don't uh, sell uh, something just because it's down. Um, Another thing that I would put on the list, and I, you might have it, Phil, uh, but incentives, and then specifically management incentives, yeah. I feel like... No, uh, they're on there for sure, yeah. Yeah. It's a huge one. Yeah, like insider ownership, what does their compensation look like, and so forth, because 
you really want management to be as aligned as possible with the owners of the business and not just be agents uh, looking to maximize their short-term uh, take-home pay. Uh, so those are just uh, a few, but what a great list um, and, and nice uh, additions there, Elliot, uh, as well. Yeah, thanks to both of you guys. There's some really good ones that I, yeah, the being fearful when others are greedy and vice versa is something that should be right there at the top of the list. That, that was a glaring omission on my part. That's a good one. Terrific. Uh, Elliot, should we move uh, over to you for your topic, please? Yeah, awesome. It was very timely that you mentioned incentives at the tail end there because it's part of what I want to talk about in this. Uh, you know, I want to do something a little different today too and talk through, um, wouldn't call it a comprehensive case study, but my experience investing in nuanced communications because, um, you know, they're recently uh, set to be acquired by Microsoft. And um, it's one of the more bittersweet experiences I've had. So I want to touch on both like the setup and the um, incentives that led to an outcome, I think that was, you know, less than, which is one to celebrate in some ways, but less than perfect. And so we wrote uh, Nuance in our Q1 2020 commentary, which is also known as our COVID commentary. It was uh, purchased, uh, you know, kind of preceding and during uh, the COVID crash uh, in our in our portfolios. Um, the stock first came on our radar when a good friend of mine was like, hey, you know, this is a stock I think you'd find interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, he's quite familiar with how I invest. Um, and I'd say in a nutshell, you know, we look for, uh, we're GARP investors, so looking for growth and value in each investment, but quality as well. So unmitigating about that. And then beyond that, we're looking for you know, investing around change, change, whether it be on the corporate level, so companies undergoing change and change in the sector and the space and the industry they're operating in, looking at optionality and looking for something that's a strategic asset in and of itself. And so these three elements of change, optionality, and strategic asset really came into play. So we first got interested in nuance uh, because there was a new CEO, Mark Benjamin, who came in with a very different strategy than the company had executed and deployed beforehand. They spun off uh, their auto uh, division, Serence. They had a robust investor day introducing a roadmap for what their strategy was as a business centralizing around a core in effectively what Nuance does is transcription. But transcription itself, as you know, uh, just from talking to your Alexa or Google, whatever device it is, um, or Siri, right? And by the way, Nuance powered Siri originally. Um, transcription itself is a fairly commoditized problem. So the company said, you know, where do we have unique advantages and how can we lean into those advantages and make our product even more valuable for the people who engage with it? And by the way, as a slight digression, this is a story that I think is incredibly relevant for Vimeo that was just spun off of IAC the day before we we're recording this, so May 25th. Um, and you know, I think that'll go down as one of the all-time uh, business uh, strategy case studies. And I think it's very relevant for where Twitter is today. So digression over, um, Nuance was like, how do we add value? What do we do? And how can we make it a product that's even better? And they were building this product called that you know, a, a, ambient clinical uh, or DAX, uh, if you will, is what what they call it. Their DAX product, which was designed to save time of doctors. Um, it works with the coding systems where doctors are supposed to um, kind of profile every interaction with their uh, patients and organize it based on 
what's uh, what's being done and what they have to follow up on. Um, if you'll think about when you're in a doctor's office, they're typically working in like their Epic or Cerner system, like jotting down notes as they're talking to you. They're not exactly looking you in the eye. They're, if they're not a very good typer, they're probably staring at their computer instead of talking to you. So with this ambient clinical uh, interface, they are actually able to, as a doctor, look you in the eye as a patient, speak with you, and the transcription can not only you know get the words right, but know neatly how to organize it. And this creates a recurring revenue, high margin SaaS-like product from what was you know effectively a licensed business. So immense corporate change where they're uh, moving from you know, uh, having to sell each year to an ARR, sticky, recurring revenue, very low churn, um, interesting product. Now, they hadn't fully launched DAX. They were just slowly rolling it out, finishing their case studies and uh, their beta testing, had implied guidance of about 10 to 25 million in ARR contribution for that this year. Um, but we were gaining a lot of conviction that they could get to 150 million contribution very quickly. Um, from this line of business. And then suddenly, as we're gaining conviction in that, the company announces they're selling to Microsoft over a weekend, or, or at least the whispers and the news started coming up. And then it's like, oh, well, that's great. They're going to pay a whole lot of money. And it turns out, actually, no, Microsoft was going to pay you know, basically a 15% premium from where it had traded just a couple weeks prior. Um, which really was striking. And I think what it comes down to is as much as we appreciated Mark Benjamin, incentives. Incentives matter. So his annual comp was $12 million a year when you add in uh, achieving all the, uh, I'd say, uh, high but achievable hurdles that were in his core comp uh, comp, uh, package. Um, The problem was that he had this $54 million changing control payout benefit. Um, and beyond that, what became clear is Microsoft not only um, you know, was willing to acquire the business, which kind of kicked in this 54 million change in control, which is you know almost five years of comp getting uh, paid out all at once. Um, he's going to have a job running this division within Microsoft, which is a really great, high profile, um, well compensated position. And you know, it makes me wonder, like, at what point uh, do uh, shareholders? I, I, come into play here? You know, who is the decision ultimately getting made for? Um, And obviously, there's a board that's looking over this, and it's a very good outcome from where it had started not long beforehand, but it feels like something that is um, very bittersweet insofar as you're on the brink of launching the most important product in your company's history, whose strategy uh, was geared toward getting to this moment, to this juncture, and you don't even get to see the fruits of that. Uh, all the fruits of that are going to be launched in Microsoft. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one that I've had a hard time wrestling with, hard time wrestling with, you know, thinking about, hey, okay, so we got this right, that there was change, there was optionality, because, you know, who would have imagined they'd be purchased for this price, just, to, you know, where they were uh, a year before. Um, and it's proof that this was clearly a strategic asset, because Microsoft's not buying it uh, solely for, um, the actual cash flow, which is quite lush, they're buying it because strategically they think it's a very important area to be in a business to be in, and they think there's a lot of other levers they could pull in driving their own strategy. So strategically important and uh, interesting in that sense. But you know how how do you synthesize this whole situation? How do you make it um, something? I have a very hard time thinking of how to how to feel about this. And I'm curious if you guys have been in any similar situations 
um, how you feel about incentive structures that lead to these kinds of outcomes, um, how you think about timing, you know, like how to, when you underwrite an idea, you want to see it through. If you're going to hold for the risk side of things, you want to hold for the reward side of things. And, you know, how do you get to a position where, where you're comfortable if a company could kind of, um, I'd, I'd almost call it a take under, though not exactly that way. So curious your guys' thoughts and see anything similar experiences in your history or what else comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I didn't follow this one closely, so I can't add anything specifically to this one. But yeah, it it is funny that we talked about incentives leading right up to this because you just never know um, what the executives are really cooking up, right? I mean, one thing that that sort of jumps to mind is a company I've been involved with, and I, I still own it, and uh, it's going through an interesting phase right now where the industry is actually booming. It's it's related to the the home building industry. So the industry is just booming right now, but it was a long time uh, consolidator, a roll up in the industry. And and the, the 80 or 81 year old CEO had retired a couple of years ago and handed the reins to his number two. And, and this guy had come up through the business. He was the COO and now all of a sudden he took over as CEO and he was continuing to do the same good job. And then right before the pandemic hit, so in January of 2020, he announced all of a sudden he was going to retire despite being like, you know, 53 or something relatively young, you know, he just decided he'd made enough money and, and didn't want to keep grinding it out and, and keep doing the work. He wanted to go relax or whatever. And so there was no succession plan in place, which was kind of surprising. And so, and then the pandemic hit and threw everything in the, you know, into the mixer for six months. So what did the company do? They went out and rekindled merger talks with somebody that they'd you know, talked to over the years and ended up doing an all stock transaction where they kind of gave away, you know, way more of the company than I thought they needed to and gave the CEO job to the other, to the target company CEO. So he got the combined CEO job, which, you know, so again, I, it's unclear what the original company got out of the deal that was so awesome. I mean, it's kind of similar to this, but in reverse. And, you know, I think the incentives were that, um, you know, the primary agents that had been involved over the years were all just kind of stepping back from the scenes. They all had their own personal incentives of what they wanted to do differently. And um, in some ways it was, it was kind of frustrating. So, and I, you know, I've seen plenty of situations in reverse. I mean, I'm not saying this was malfeasance or there was any, there are any bad actors here, but it can certainly end up that way. I mean, we've certainly seen when companies get into any sort of financial distress, you know, there can be an element of incentives and panic or both, you know, reputational issues come into play. I mean, you can get some really goofy outcomes there. And again, that doesn't apply to nuance, but um, yeah, look, I mean, this is where I get back to, you know, how could you possibly capture everything that's going on in this situation by looking at the historical numbers, right? I mean, these are people making these decisions and driving these outcomes. So, um, and even, even if you're in the boardroom, you probably only have, you know, 75% 75% of the information <laughs> you'd want, right? I mean, there's just lots of incomplete information out there. So it's it's not easy. Yeah, it's interesting. The example you mentioned is one that was also a roll-up because Nuance was effectively, in, in its earliest incarnation, a roll-up of different voice-adjacent uh, strategies. And, you know, Benjamin was kind of brought in to clean up and make it right. And I was really enthusiastic about seeing him see it through, <laughs> And, you know, when I first heard the whisper of the deal before the price, I was like, I, I tweeted out, I'm actually super excited for Mark Benjamin and eager to see where he goes next, because I really thought he brought 
I, I still, I, I shouldn't say that in past tense. I think he brings the right mentality and the right ethos. Um, though, you know, incentives could lead people to do some, some wonky things or, you know, but the, all the other side of that is perhaps there was something in the situation that I wasn't considering, which is, uh, originally, you know, Epic, who's one of the major, uh, uh, EMRs, they were, or EHRs, they were working with, um, Nuance to kind of embed, uh, the product in, in their own interface. And it was one of the first times Epic was working with people in this way, uh, with a vendor supplier in this way. And I was pretty excited about that. And very recently heading into the deal, they announced that they were actually, or had leaked that they were going to be trying to develop these capabilities in-house. As unlikely as I felt their capacities were to compete, um, perhaps there's something, you know, competitively that inspired this and, and that I'm not seeing the full picture. And I think that gets to your conversation last week, Phil, on um, everything we're doing and in investing is facing um, incomplete information in addition to uncertainty. And if I could go back, I, I wish we spoke a little more about this idea that the information that we see, we can only paint a mosaic. We're reading between lines in a lot of places. When you listen to management speak, you could talk to 10 different investors and get you know 10 different takeaways depending on who it is. Um, and there's a lot that's challenging when working with uh, information that's inherently uh, face that way. And I've often mused about how there are certain companies out there who, you know, you could take two companies and they could say the exact different things, but one inherently gets the benefit of the doubt on everything. And the other inherently gets punished for saying the same sort of thing. And it's about, you know, I think training your investor base, uh, driving your investor base to believe a certain way on being, uh, consistent as management in communication, um, you know, I think all these things come into play in addition to incentives. Um, curious how you, uh, you know, what are, what are some things that we could tackle to try to like, make sure that our, our mosaics as complete as possible in that sense. John, you want to tackle that easy one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that one. I'll tackle the, <laughs> just, um, you know, the, the, the case study, Elliot, I think is a great one for, for, for multiple reasons. Um, you've kind of ultimately framed it up as, as, uh, incentives. Uh, so I'll focus on that a little bit. Um, and you know, there's some great Charlie Munger quotes around incentives, show me the incentives and I will show you the outcome or, uh, never ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives. And we see that over and over with management teams. So just knowing how are they compensated? What are their their incentives? Is uh, so key. You know, change of control provisions. Obviously, um, sometimes a company will put in place a change of control provision when they're already know when they already know that they're going to be working on uh, some kind of a sale. Uh, so often, uh, that kind of a thing uh, can be used to to actually um, you know get some some information about a potential sale uh, happening at some point um, so you know or another kind of management incentive is if you see management compensated based on EBITDA you know they'll actually managements will tout that they'll say well EBITDA that's cash flow actually it 
incentivizes them to take on a lot of leverage. Maybe leverage that's ultimately going to come to bite the shareholders, but in the meantime, uh, the CEO is going to make a lot of money because EBITDA can uh, go up for a while as you're levering up the company to do acquisitions or, or what have you. Um, you know, Elliot, you asked the question, like, at what point do shareholders get to decide? Because ultimately, you know, you've got the CEO, he's going to be well taken care of at Microsoft. The shareholders are maybe missing up on uh, on another good chunk of upside here as uh, the new product uh, strategy gets uh, uh, into the market. And, um, you know, I, I recently interviewed uh, Connor Haley at AltaFox. Um, he's had two fairly recent examples where companies basically uh, were going to sell themselves for way below fair value. And he decided to become activist uh, in those cases, and he did so successfully. Uh, so that's certainly one possibility. There's another example uh, that I'm not very familiar with, uh, but it's a current example with uh, Bergson acquiring Hunter Douglas. Uh, this I was can, announced I in. I can uh, take that one. <laughs> you want to take that one? Yeah. Uh, I literally, that was what I wrote down. I didn't mean to interrupt if you want to keep going, but yeah, that was I wrote it down too. Jeremy Raper's taking them on. That's an interesting situation. Well, I find that fascinating. I don't know him, but like there is literally 0.0 effect that anyone like him was ever going to have in this situation, right? I mean, the family already controlled 90% of the voting rights here, 90, 90. And so what's so fascinating is that back in the day, like 20 years ago, yeah, they were already a controlled company back then. They used to be in the U.S. They took it back to the Netherlands is where it's based now. But it it follows Curacao law, and there's a bunch of opaque Dutch provisions here that, that actually apply uh, to the corporate governance. But anyway, so 20 years ago, they actually started buying back big chunks of stock in, in various tender offers, and they got into litigation with, I can't remember if it was Fidelity or T. Rowe, because they were accused of, of buying the blocks of stock too cheaply. And it's like, all right, well, look, you know, you didn't have to tend to your shares if you thought it was too cheaply. But anyway, um, they stopped doing that for, you know, over a decade. They just said, all right, we're not going to buy back any more shares like that. We don't want to make people angry, I guess, or whatever. So I actually bought some of this stock uh, around this time last year. Uh, it was a little bit beaten up, obviously, with the pandemic. People were unsure as to what was going to happen. They were having some of their own operational issues. Um, there was some competition in Asia that looked a little scary. I mean, so it was ostensibly a pretty cheap company. And then as I talked to the company, it became very clear that they kind of kept this loaded gun in their back pocket because there was this tiny little preferred issue. It was, you know, maybe nine or $10 million of preferred outstanding, but it had super voting privileges. And the only reason they kept it outstanding was because it kept them above 90%. And when I kept pressing the company to say like, all right, well, why do you need this preferred issue outstanding if you don't care about the ability to be over 90%, because over 90%, they could effectuate a short-term, a short-form merger and just blast people out at whatever price they wanted to. And, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't give me a straight answer. And so, you know, in a slap your head kind of moment, I actually ended up getting a little bit uncomfortable with what was going on overall. And this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So I sold it last September, October, um, not long after I bought it, I, I just I couldn't quite get comfortable with making it a really big position. And there were enough things that were nagging at me. I just didn't like it. And then in December, right 
as Christmas approached, they announced that they were going to buy the whole company, the family put together a vehicle to buy the whole, the whole company. And look, they had, they had disclaimed over the years, by the way, that they were never going to do this because they didn't want to raise, you know, whatever it was, a couple hundred million euros to buy out this 10% stub. Um, and sure enough, that's exactly what they did. And so they offered 64 or 66 euros a share. It had been mostly trading in the 40s and 50s. So it was a decent premium, not crazy, um, you know, still a reasonably cheap valuation at that price. And, and there's nothing stopping them, right? I mean, they, they literally have nothing to answer to but their own conscience in this case, right? And so, you know, all, the, all these folks saying like, oh, you're, you're, you're stealing the company. I'm like, sure, I guess. But like, there's literally nothing different about this situation than any other acquisition or certainly any of the 1900 different Liberty Media transactions. I mean, this, this is like straight out of that same playbook. And yet last week or on Saturday, I think it was, they came out and announced that basically because they feel like it, they're going to raise the price to 82 euros a share. And it's just amazing, right? Because there is absolutely no legal recourse. There is absolutely no remedy. Um, and, and they just decided to do it. So it's kind of the opposite of what we were talking about earlier. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, John, but I just, it did jump out at me as like a rip from the headlines kind of opposite case study. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I think that's an awesome example. And it's interesting because that company effectively traded with a, uh, call it a risk premium because this was a known pop possibility, oh, right? hundred percent. I mean, this um, is what everybody feared. I mean, they could have done this and gotten away with it as a true take under, right? Yep. And, and bid below the market price or right at the market price or, you know, 5% premium or whatever. And instead, this is effectively going to be, look, the operational results have been awesome too. So I think even at 82 euros a share, they're probably still not losing any sleep about paying this price. Let's put it that way. But look, what was the point too in in not doing this years and years ago. They could have done it even cheaper three or four years ago, right? I mean, I think Ralph Sonnenberg's now like 80 years old. Uh, you know, they already controlled 80% of the company. They already took dividends out of the company as needed on an annual ad hoc kind of basis to do whatever they wanted. They had more money than they'd ever need. Um, you know, why why do it, right? As a pandemic is starting to clear, you know, and then why raise the price when there's absolutely no reason to, no one could force you to. I mean, there, there's almost by definition, there's no chance that anybody here could have owned more than 50 basis points or maybe 100 basis points of the common stock, right? And then you're going up against a multi-billionaire family that owns 91% of the stock where they legally have the right to just squeeze you out in a short-form merger. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy situation. And in the U.S., we actually do have, in theory, legal recourse in this case. Minority Correct. shareholders have, had, have appraisal you could have rights. Had appraisal rights, yeah. But in this case, you did not. And by the way, that wouldn't have mattered. Like this was not so egregious that that would have been upheld. I mean, they were not taking the company at you know some egregiously low price. I mean, I as a non-lawyer, you know, I'm I'm venturing a, a guess here, but I would give you way less than one or 2% chance of having succeeded on appraisal rights, even if that was an option, which it wasn't. Yeah, it's interesting because for a while, appraisal rights was actually like a strategy that some funds were deploying. And then suddenly sure. courts decided that, oh, actually, we're going to say some appraisals are below the value of the takeover price. Right. So not only have you tied up this capital and litigation expense for a prolonged period of time, you get marked down from where you could have gotten and so it's not really a strategy anymore, but I think it's interesting to think about it. You know, theoretically, there's this uh, 
um, helping hand uh, to kind of prevent and discourage this sort of behavior, but it really has no practical application in the modern world. And I think that gets to those like abstractions that I was talking about uh, from core market essence, uh, you know, in your section up top, Phil. Yeah. And um, yeah, this is a fascinating situation. I guess, Phil, uh, you just uh, made the point that they really didn't have to raise the price at all. Um, no, and they didn't. It, kind of reminded of another situation in the last couple of years, I guess, with the TK Offshore Partners that was um, taken private, acquired by a Brookfield asset management entity. And, you know, they they did it the way it was, it could legally be done. And, you know, there was this huge outcry among shareholders, oh, Bruce Flat, this is going to ruin your reputation. Not really, you know, Bruce Flatt didn't really care, I guess, about about that because, you know, he was just pushing his uh, his legal rights and uh, and that was that. Um, but you you have these kinds of situations uh, come up. And um, again, I think, you oh. know, Phil, yeah, go ahead, Phil. I was going to say, speaking of Brookfield, I mean, how about the Oak Tree transaction, right? What was that, two years ago now? I mean, mm-hmm. that's a pretty interesting one, right? I mean, I have lots of respect for Oak Tree. Um, as a firm and, and the, the great people who work there, but you know, that raises some of these same questions, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was a controlled entity. It was never all that clear, um, as to what they were going to do as a public company or why they really wanted this access to the public market so badly. And they were public for what, six or seven years, maybe something like that. And, uh, I think they could, I think they would admit that it was, you know, not a great idea. And they went, Private, you know, went right back into into Brookfield's arms as a as a private company where they kept all the the voting rights and economics, and you know that's that, right? Yeah. So management incentives clearly matters a lot. Uh, you know, I think sometimes investors also kind of overplay uh, their hand, if you will, or their analysis, and they think a company is suddenly worth you know five times the market price. Maybe, but maybe not. You know, I mean, you've had plenty of managements sell out cheap, not, you know, just because they felt that that was a good idea. I mean, think of Instagram, right? Terrible idea, but they didn't do it to screw anyone uh, over. They screwed themselves over. So you got to kind of also keep it in mind that the management is not necessarily screwing uh, you. It's just uh, they may feel the price is uh, fairly adequate. And again, you know, their own incentives are going to deviate from from the investors' incentives. Yeah, it's such a tough, tricky area because, um, you know, once these things happen, you do tend to like step up what you'd expect. In Nuance's case, I was hopeful that because it is a strategic asset, someone out there who is looking to get into similar areas might uh, make an over-the-top bid. Unfortunately, it never came. So there is a market, right? There is there is this idea that if it is such a steal, someone else should be out there hunting. Um, I think the Instagram example is an interesting one because like, you know, at the same time, you could say the value would have never been as much as it is today had they not been acquired and had they not had the resource and the uh, back-end capabilities to leverage. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, it's interesting to think that I feel we're in a new era of M&A. When I was like coming up in this industry, a lot of people would say like, you know, all M&A is inherently value destructive. And I think we've seen some of the more interesting, more uh, fruitful M&A in recent times, though we've also seen some like spectacular blowups. Think about 
like Valiant um, and how big they went. Um, and, you know, I wonder what sort of coming out of this COVID period M&A activity there's going to be because there's some companies that have way more firepower than they thought they would uh, at this time last year. Um, and they have incentives to make things happen. So it'll be, uh, I'm, I'm eager to see where this goes from here. Um, certain sectors in particular, like you could see the case for a lot of consolidation, maybe even thinking more, more globally. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, in just the last uh, couple of days or over the weekend, there was a big uh, acquisition announced in uh, the German residential apartment real estate space, uh, where I think the biggest player of Onovia acquired uh, Deutsche Wohnen at a decent premium, not huge. Um, and they were going to control so much of the market that they turned around and offered to sell a, a an apartment portfolio to the city of Berlin, I believe, or something like that. And of course, that's kind of uh, maybe the, one of the lesser attractive pieces of their portfolio because Berlin had uh, some rent controls and stuff. Um, so yeah, to your point, Elliot, uh, there's definitely probably going to see some interesting uh, transactions coming down the pike. And um, in this specific case in Germany, you would have been much better being on the target side than on the acquiring side. Uh, the target stock was up 15-20% and the, the uh, acquirer stock went down, I think, about 5% on that announcement. Yeah, that's more traditional for what you'd expect in M&A, right? The acquirer has typically... I, I remember reading a paper on this like a decade ago that the, the uh, acquirer acquirer typically goes down on the day of the transaction because people are unsure what to expect. Um, but, you know, uh, maybe times are different, regimes are different, rates are low. So, you know, when you think of hurdle rates to actually realize uh, net positive value to shareholders, it's definitely an easier recipe, um, especially for some of these companies that are overcapitalized to begin with. Look at Microsoft, how much, uh, you know, net cash they've been carrying for a long time, still ways to go to get totally optimized on a balance sheet perspective. Um, I, I, I don't really know how to play it or how to like think about positioning for it. It's kind of like the strategic asset wrinkle I think of when I invest more as a put option than a call option in a lot of ways. And I, it's been helpful as such. Uh, I think about something like Grubhub for my personal experience, but um, it would be interesting to see it transform into more of, of a call option uh, than, than I'd been thinking of it. I don't know. From a personal perspective, I'd had surprisingly little m and I went from 2013 through 2020 without a single uh, um, takeover in my portfolio. And that was, I, I, I had thought of it quite as quite weird because considering most of our book is like two to $10 billion market cap equities where you'd exactly, I, I would think the range you'd expect more of that uh, to take out, to happen. Um, but then again, you know, there's a difference between industries that are undergoing consolidation and industries that are not, um, and capital cycles in general. So, um, I've, I've really liked that marathon framework that we talked about in an earlier, uh, podcast about capital cycles playing out. Um, clearly you could tell I haven't had much exposure to semiconductor space, but that was, uh, one of the, uh, M&A's experience in 2020. Do you guys use it as an explicit part of what you look for anywhere ever, or, is that just you know a, a a good fortune cookie when it happens? What's that M and A? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, look, so there was there was a time where I actually 
it was this a long time ago now, but I used to go prospecting for uh, community banks that were takeout targets, particularly if they were former mutual conversions, because there were, you know, these were hundred million to two billion size market caps. So they were relatively small. The access to information was pretty good, but there were just very few people looking. And the incentives got pretty clear pretty quickly, right? So I mean, you could go looking around and say, you know, who'd passed the various anniversaries on their demutualization. You could make a few calls. I mean, I remember the first time the light bulb kind of clicked was I started homing in on this area in New Jersey that was ripe for consolidation. And there was one bank that was just a super obvious takeover target. And I couldn't figure out why it hadn't been taken over. Nobody seemed to know. And I, I called a few of their competitors and they basically said, oh yeah, well, as soon as Jim, the CEO had his heart attack last year, I think everything changed. And sure enough, you know, six months later, they announced a, a deal at a 50% premium. So that, that kind of stuff is definitely out there. I think community banks are, you know, there's still 3000 plus of them out there and the vast majority are going to be consolidated away over the next 20 or 30 years. So that stuff is out there. I mean, that's an explicit example of what you're talking about. Other than that, I think it's really tough, right? I mean, it's inherently still speculative, right? And even in something like community bank, I mean, I wouldn't want to make it the primary thing that I was looking for, right? Because if I get the first whiff of a bad credit culture, right? Or, or a business that's not run properly or a weak balance sheet or whatever, like it doesn't matter how likely I think a takeover is because it's inherently a tough game to speculate on. And likewise, I mean, that was my problem with Hunter Douglas was, you know, I the possibility of a big premium was there, and it you know this premium is going to end up being something like seventy five percent over my cost basis. So it's awfully painful in that regard. In terms of I missed most of that. Um, it was a you know was it a dumb decision? I mean, partly I guess, but you know I I thought that the operational issues they were having combined with the management, you know, kind of hide the pickle game was just not a great sign for what was going on, you know, it was relatively hard to get information. It was clearly a controlled company. So it just didn't, didn't seem like a great, a great setup. And, you know, as you get into other things, I mean, um, years ago, I was involved with a company that was just horribly run and it was totally obvious that they, they were undertaking a sales process. And sure enough, I mean, they were sold to a private equity firm within six or eight months. And so, you know, I, I will go looking for those types of situations where I think things are are totally lined up in your favor, but the, the sword cuts both ways, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. You you just made me remember an example from my history of this like controlled company that doesn't really want to talk. Um, and I still like the company, but I, you know, sold my stake similarly too soon, though not ahead of MA. It was Johnson Outdoors. So the family, the scion of SC Johnson and Co. had started as a side hobby like a kayaking uh, company, uh, sells kayaks. And they expanded and acquired uh, like a suite of outdoors, uh, outdoor activity assets. And, you know, it was extremely cheap, uh, had a ton of net cash. Um, And it's um, Helen Wood Johnson, who's, uh, I'm blanking on who her husband is, who owns the Minnesota Wild. Um, But you know, they wouldn't talk to anyone. They wouldn't give you any information. Their their calls, like no analyst would show up. Uh, so you'd have this, like, you know, maybe five minutes of prepared remarks, and you're like, well, what what do these people think? Like, what are they doing? What are they in this for? Um, you know, uh, I feel like those situations are inherently inherently tricky. Phil, I'm curious. You said uh, mistake with Hunter Douglas, but would you consider the mistake having bought it in the first place or having you know, sold it instead of them. No, I mean, I uh, guess, I guess the mistake would be, 
you know, they had this history of tendering for the stock kind of cheap and that's not a, a problem or a sin, right? So I I guess I just, I almost outthought myself or got too cute with it because, uh, you know, I think the fear was at the time that, okay, you know, the operational issues are real. Like I'd, I'd confirmed that. And, and, and by the way, they were about to turn the corner. So th- the one thing that may have, may have tweaked their conscience a little bit was that when they announced this in December, late December, uh, it turns out that the quarter they were finishing right there was just awesome. Like they, the, the, the results they announced in late January, February, whatever it was, were just amazing. Right. So, um, but I was worried about the opposite, right. Which was going to be that, you know, they're, they're clearly retaining this option to do a, a short form merger and that they're going to pull that trigger right after they have a really bad quarter and the stock's down like 20%, which would have been you know down 20% from where I bought it basically. And then they're going to offer like a 5% premium, right? And there's nothing stopping them from doing that. Like all the activist letters in the world would not have stopped them from doing that, right? It's truly just their own incentives and their own conscience. So again, given the supply chain disruptions from the pandemic, and this was you know May, June, July, August, Last year, uh, you know, given the demand picture that certainly came into view, and I was getting more optimistic about, but you know, there were, there were still some uncertainties at the time. I mean, my my concern was just that, all right, these guys are not really playing it too straight with me right now. Um, you know, the incentives are quite clear for them to just retain control. I mean, they did cut off the dividend last year, which was an interesting choice, right? Because that was basically their only source of liquidity as a family. Not that they needed lots of personal liquidity, but, you know, that was a super conservative move, right? So to go from paying a pretty generous dividend to paying no dividend means that like, they're really worried about something, right? It's not like they had much debt on the balance sheet either. So like, that was a pretty bad sign. And you know, it all just proved to be kind of a, a combination of a head fake and just a short-term problem. And I, you know, whether I misread the situation or mis miscalculated the odds, you know, I could I can see it both ways. It certainly wasn't a great hand of poker that I played, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked in a situation like that where you fear effectively what they do is purposely sandbag all their numbers and just let the floor, you know, kind of like when a new CEO comes in to a company. They right. almost always want to reset expectations, knock things down, um, and start building up from like hurdles they could step over instead of jump over and set their comp accordingly. Right. Um, it's been fun reading uh, non-gaps uh, uh, Substack and learning about the dark arts of corporate governance and just you know opening my eyes to how frequently this sort of stuff plays out, even in companies where like they're not controlled and where this sort of uh, kind of option is not on the table, just how, how much of it goes on. Um, and I think it's changed the prism through which I view some of these situations. And uh, it's put some interesting setups on the table, like just pay attention to when management's acting greedy in different kinds of exactly. ways. Uh, you get huge signals from it, um, especially management teams who have a history of not acting greedy. Like if you suddenly see them acting greedy, you know, perk up your attention, like what's driving this? So yeah, you know, I I, I think maybe uh, probably our most recurrent theme is is incentives uh, and management. So I really like it. I, you know, clearly something about it that resonates with all of us. And I think um, you know there there will be continuing uh, meat on the bone to chew with with this one. 
Well, thank you, guys. A terrific discussion uh, this week, as always. Uh, really enjoyed it. I hope everyone listening did as well. Phil, did you have any closing remarks? No, I think that I think that covered it. So, thank you both for your uh, contributions here to my uh, my little two page uh, guide to life. So, I'll I'll be sure to send this around. Terrific. Thank you all. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.